And I'm grateful for that song, for the content and the sentiment behind it. I'm grateful for these that are serving alongside on both sides of the camera to make possible what we're doing. So I'm going to get right to it. I wonder if you've ever wondered if you've missed out on God's plans for your life somehow because of something that you had done. You ever wonder if because I was there then doing that, have I missed out on God's best for me somehow? Because I was someplace I should not have been doing something I should not have been, did I miss out on a blessing and did it go to somebody less deserving like Mike Hall? Have you ever been there? Man, I have, and it doesn't feel good to think that I have altered the course of my life, or at least God's plan for my life, because of something I've done. Perhaps I've been in a season where I was just not in fellowship, living under the burden of unconfessed sin, or just distracted and busy with other things. And I look back on that time and think, man, did I miss out on what God was wanting for my life? And inevitably, when those times occur, and the enemy of my soul, the adversary of my mind begins to accuse. It begins to say, you were off your game. You were not at your watch post. God is so disappointed in you. You have missed out because of what you have done. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. Like a lot. And so my hope and my prayer would be that today's text would do for you what it has done for me, which is to free me from that burden, that crushing weight of trying to think that God's plan for my life is actually somehow up to me because it is not. Which is why we find ourselves, by God's grace and not coincidentally, in the book of Esther. Lord willing, we will be in the book of Esther for the next several weeks. So if you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Esther. Esther is, uh, you know, right there between Job and Nehemiah, where you spend a ton of time devotionally, I'm sure. You might need your table of contents or a GPS, I don't know. But we're going to take some time to set up the context and the backdrop for the book of Esther. What the whole book of Esther is going to tell us, and specifically these first couple chapters that we're going to cover this morning are going to tell us, is our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. Despite whatever accusation you might receive from your enemy, despite whatever sorts of organized religion or your own sense of common sense might be telling you, God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. And that's very good news. This is the book of Esther. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time setting up the historical context of the book of Esther. It's actually a perfect follow-on from what we studied for the first three weeks um, in our time together online. Well, after Romans, that is. We were in the book of Habakkuk. And in the book of Habakkuk, it's about 605 B.C., the first of three exiles by the Babylonians take place. God brings judgment against Judah for their covenant unfaithfulness. And so God removes them from the land by exile via the Babylonians in three successive waves of exile for a period not to exceed 70 years. That's what the book of Jeremiah tells us. You will depart from the land. You will experience, in a sense, separation, which is death. You're out of the land. Israel is functionally, communally dead. 
They're in Babylon for 70 years. That was the book of Habakkuk. Now, the book of Esther comes along, and it follows right after these things. The Babylonian exile had probably, the first one at 605, had probably included Daniel and his three friends. It takes place in 605 B.C. And then finally, the, the third exile takes place in 586 B.C., where Jerusalem is utterly destroyed. Three separate exiles. But Habakkuk is comforted and told that the Babylonians, instruments of your judgment, they themselves will be judged as well. And so in October of 539 B.C., the coalition force of the Medes and Persians sweep in and they destroy the Babylonian Empire. Literally overnight, the Babylonian Empire is over. The Medes and the Persians take over. Darius is king. Daniel actually stays in the land and he continues to serve King Darius. Now, what we're going to find is that there's a couple capitals of the Persian Empire. The winter capital is called Susa. We've got a map of the Persian Empire just to give you an idea of where all this is located. Susa is 900 miles to the east of Jerusalem, 900 miles away. And so there are all of these people from Israel who have been deported there 900 miles away. But after the 70 years of exile is over, just as God had directed and just as the prophets promised, they were all supposed to have returned to Israel, all of them. They were supposed to go back to Israel and take possession of the land that they had been promised, that they had mismanaged. They were supposed to go back and take it under. And so the first wave goes back under Ezra and Zerubbabel. And very quickly, as they set to work on rebuilding the temple, the people almost immediately fall into covenant disfaithfulness and begin to experience the, well, the consequences from the Lord. King Cyrus issues the final decree that says, yes, I want everyone to go back. And we know from the book of Esther that about 50,000 plus people left those areas of the Persian Empire and went back to Israel, 50,000 plus, which sounds like a lot, except that there were over a million of them that did not ever leave. Over a million. God was very clear. He made it abundantly clear in the book of Zechariah chapter 2 in Isaiah and Jeremiah that all of those people, once the exile was over, they were supposed to return to the land. But over almost a million of them stayed. So this book of Esther is actually written to and for them, those who decided to stay. Again, we're going to see through this book of Esther that God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. There are some famous aspects to this book of Esther. You might be aware of this. It is the only book of our Bible where the name of God is not mentioned even one time. No mention of Yahweh whatsoever. Now, the Song of Solomon is very close to that. Uh, sorry, second, you might say. In Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 6, the name of Yahweh is mentioned. But in the book of Esther, no mention of God whatsoever. You never see his name mentioned, but the movement of his hand is unmistakable. You're not going to see any miracles, no signs, no wonders. Nothing out of the ordinary ever really takes place. There's no prophetic vision. There's no oracles or words or dreams, nothing like that at all. There's no mention of the temple, no mention of worship. The law of God is never mentioned even one time. There's not one single mention of prayer, although there's one time where fasting is called for. So then why exactly is this book, even in our canon of Scripture, this inspired Bible that we have, why is the book of Esther even here? It doesn't seem to fit. Well, it fits marvelously into God's story. I know I'm going to fly in the faces of a lot of people who have 
heard wonderful Bible studies in the book of Esther. Perhaps you've even been taught the book of Esther by VeggieTales. Um, the book of Esther is actually in place for quite a different reason altogether. See, the Bible is the story of God's activity on the earth, specifically his actionable doings to redeem a people to himself who neither desire it nor deserve it. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, something significant happens. I'll read this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve have fallen, God pronounces curse on the enemy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 3.15 really sort of sets the stage that there's going to be animosity and anger and hatred from our enemy to the people of God. And the Old Testament is full of narrative instances in which Satan, the adversary, the enemy, tries to, well, annihilate and exterminate the people of God. This book of Esther includes one of those. We'll see it, of course, in the New Testament where King Herod tries to kill all of the male children who have, who have been the same age as Jesus. And, of course, throughout all of our history since the closure of the canon of Scripture, the people of God, the nation of Israel, has been persecuted. So this little story is showing that despite the disfaithfulness of the people, God is still faithful. Let me say it again. God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. God will once again be faithful to save his people despite their being faithless. He's gonna use ordinary people in ordinary events to accomplish extraordinary things. Again, his name will never be explicitly mentioned in the entire story. Nobody will call out to him in prayer. And yet he is the one who is going to be working to save his people because he promised to do so. It's incredibly important that we remember that when God says this is what's going to happen, it will absolutely come to pass because God says so. So I want you to look in your Bibles at the book of Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. We're going to ask Ashley Barrero to read that for us again. Esther 1, 1 to 5. This is Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia under 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. This is the word of God. Thanks, Ashley. So this is the backdrop that the writer of the book of Esther wants us to know. We don't know who wrote the book of Esther. We just know that it includes some pretty incredible story so that we can see that God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. So let me just walk through some of these pieces very briefly. We're going to walk through essentially almost the first two chapters. I'm not going to read all of it. I encourage you to do that. There's a whole lot of proper names and places that we're not going to unpack and exegete, but I will trust that you will, in your time, read these first two chapters of Esther. Let me just start here again in verse 1. In the days of Ahasuerus, I never say that, right? And nobody does. There's like 19 different pronunciations of it. Ahasuerus? Ahasuerus. We don't know. It's the Persian version 
of his Greek name, which is Xerxes. Now, Xerxes' father was Darius. So he is in power, and the text wants us to know that it's an enormous amount of power and prestige that he has. He rules 127 provinces. Judea was one of those provinces, and he rules everything from what is today Western Pakistan all the way down to central Ethiopia. His empire was vast. And so let's look and see what he does. Verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. This is the winter capital. He's got two capitals. This is the winter capital. In the third year of his reign, he's going to reign for some 20 years. But here's where the narrative of Esther takes place. And we know that because of these time markers with great specificity, the book of Esther actually takes place over about 10 years. So there's going to be some significant gaps in the narrative as we walk through this series, but the whole thing takes place over about 10 years. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Well, this writer doesn't give us the exact reason why, but he had just lost a pretty significant battle with the Greeks. And he wants to avenge his father Darius's loss at the hands of the Greeks. And so he's bringing all these people for a massive banquet. All the governors, all the authorities, all of the military leaders, he's bringing them all together. They're all before him. Verse 4. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. Now, I've been to some long parties, but six months that's insane. And his whole point is to show off how great and glorious and sovereign he is, the richness, the splendor of this king, as he tries to rally the support of all of his governors of all these provinces, all the different manifestations of his wealth, because he's trying to rally support so that he can launch an all-out campaign to extend and expand his empire against the Greeks. Verse 5, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, not just the nobility and the military commanders and the governors, for all of the citizens in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting eh, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. That's still pretty amazing. A seven-day jam for all of the population of Susa, the winter capital of the Persian Empire. For seven days, he's essentially buttering everyone up to show them what a great, glorious, sovereign king that he is. So I want you to have this guy in mind. He's one of the primary players in all the 10 chapters of the book of Esther. Well, just to sort of quickly summarize through verses 6 to 11, it's incredibly opulent. It's meant to impress all of his officials. Now, drinking was ordinarily controlled by the king. You could only drink from your cup when the king drank. The king even controlled that level of behavior. But in this case, the text says, you were not under compulsion. You could drink whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, as much as you wanted. This was that kind of a party. Now we're also introduced to Queen Vashti. This is our first introduction to her. We really don't know anything else about her at all. But we know that separately to sort of support her husband, she gives a separate banquet for all of the women. So everybody in this area is being wined and dined. A separate banquet for the women so that everybody would be entertained. On the last day of the banquet, which is for the common people. So 180 days of partying and then a seven-day banquet for everybody. And the king is ripped I can't imagine the amount of consumption this guy has 
taken in, but he's finally ripped. And so to sort of show off the final jewel in his crown, you might say, he calls for his wife and he wants to parade her in front of all the people to show this is the kind of guy that I have. Look at her. Isn't she beautiful? Now, there's a lot of theories about why ultimately she will not do this. One theory says, well, she's actually present or pregnant, sorry, with his son, Artaxerxes, and she does not want to be paraded. Another idea is that when the text says he wants to parade her wearing her crown, that that's all she's wearing. I'm not so sure about that, but whatever the case, she refuses. My sense is she just does not want to be paraded in front of this 187-day frat party. That's my sense. And so she refuses, and the king is absolutely furious. There's actually some brilliant and beautiful satire happening here. This great glorious king who is sovereign over 127 provinces, who's thrown a 187-day banquet, who has all kinds of riches and silver and linens and cloths and all these things. Yeah, he can't control his wife. Sometimes you can't make this stuff up because it's so very real. Hopefully I'm getting many amens from the other side of the camera. Well, we meet Queen Vashti. Here's what we're told about her in chapter 1, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At, the, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. He was known to have an extremely hot temper. And so he doesn't know what to do. And so he does what a lot of guys do. He gets all of his buddies together. Because like most guys, we think all of our ideas are good. And so they decide, hey, we have to do something about this. We can't let her go on with an open mind because then all of the women in the empire will start to go crazy and express their opinions. So here's what we're going to do, king. You should issue an edict, a royal decree that says she is deposed. She is put aside. She is no longer the queen. Effectively, she's divorced. And you send that as a show of force to all 127 provinces in every language so that every woman will know that they have to submit to their husbands. So did I mention this is a complete council of utter geniuses? Because what they're going to do is in the entire empire legislate that all of their women respect their men. Because that always works out, right? Well, not so much. Well, a few years pass between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the king loses some very significant battles against Greece. He actually wins a significant battle at Thermopylae, but he loses a crucial battle at Salamis in about... 479 BC. And so he's depressed, he's pouty, and he's lonely. And he calls for his, oh, wait a minute. He doesn't call for her because he had her put away. So now what am I going to do? Well, he has a temper. So his council of buddies realize that this is pretty serious. The king in a bad mood means people die. But they have to come up with something new. They can't say, go back on your decree because that would be illegal. Not to mention the fact that if they bring Queen Vashti back, she's not going to like them a whole lot and she'll probably have them put to death. So they come up with a new idea. Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of the king Hazarius had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men and attendants said, uh, who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. They're going to have a beauty pageant. It's like The Bachelor 2,500 years ago. 
Let's just bring in a whole lot of contestants. Let's do this. Does this sound like it's a pagan idea? It is. And this is not where God's people are supposed to have been. Again, Zechariah 2, Jeremiah, and Isaiah made it clear that after 70 years, they're not supposed to still have been here, but they put down roots and they began to thrive and they did not want to leave. This book is for them. Verse 2, and the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And the young men, or sorry, and the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Uh, yeah, you think? He's going to have from all 127 provinces the best-looking, untouched women brought in, and they're going to be submitted to this eunuch who's going to train them in cosmetics and everything else for months so that they can be at their best to go in and see the king. Does this sound pagan to you? It should because it is. This is not where God's people are supposed to be. Let's keep reading here in verses 5 to 7. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, that's interesting. You might hear the name Mordecai and think, yes, what a very Jewish name. It isn't. It's a Persian name. It's from the Persian chief deity called Marduk. This guy is probably taken from Jerusalem to Babylon in the second exile. He's probably somewhat contemporary with Daniel. He knows Daniel. Daniel's name was changed to Belshazzar, but he never changes his name. He goes by Daniel. What we're going to see is that Mordecai is a compromiser. He's often celebrated as this great hero of faithfulness, but he is not. He has a position of authority in the city gate, and his name is Mordecai. We don't even know his real Jewish name. His name is Mordecai. He's the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. That's interesting specificity about this guy's lineage. You may not remember this, but Shammai was also a Benjamite. He's the guy that threw rocks and dirt at King David as he was pursuing King Saul. The text wants us to know that this guy comes from a questionable bloodline. He's a Benjamite, probably left-handed too. Read into that, whatever you will. Verse 6, he had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. So that puts him at the same essential time as Daniel whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah. Her name is Hadassah. That is Esther. Now, this is amazing. She also is in Babylon, or now Persia. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. Her Persian name is Esther. It's also taken from one of the Persian deities, Ishtar. It's where we get our word for Estrella in Spanish. It means star, what they would have worshipped, Venus. Esther is named after what they perceived was a star, Venus or Ishtar in Persian, Esther as we transliterate that. But her name is Hadassah, and that's really significant. Her name is Hadassah, that is Esther. She's the daughter of Mordecai's uncle, so they're actually cousins, for she had neither father nor mother. Apparently they had died, we don't know when, but she had no parents. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took care of her as his own daughter. So they're both in Persia. They're not supposed to be. Her name is Hadassah, a beautiful Hebrew name. The name Hadassah means myrtle. 
Now that might just sound like a name that's not real common in our day and age, but myrtle is a very significant symbol in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 41 and 55, the myrtle is the symbol of God's faithfulness. Where there has been bramble and briar, God will cause the myrtle to grow. That's Hadassah is myrtle. So here's this lovely, beautiful young woman. Her name is Hadassah, but her Persian name is Esther or Ishtar. And her uncle's name or cousin's name is Mordecai, taken from Marduk. Well, just to advance the narrative and to not be uh, too body in the interest of time that we have, let me just say this. From chapter 2, verses 8, all the way through 14, we're told with great specificity that Esther catches the head eunuch's eye and that he gives her extra special food, that he prepares her so that she will be extremely able and competent when she goes into the king. And let me be explicit. She's not just going in to play Connect Four. She goes in at night. She comes back in the morning. She is prepared for 12 months to please the king. And so she's given all these very rare cosmetics and scents and oils and all these things for 12 months to prepare. I do a lot of marriages. I usually get three, maybe four premarital counseling sessions. They last hmm, 90 minutes. We have Pop-Tarts and coffee. That's the only preparation they're ever going to get. This woman goes through 12 months of preparation. She goes into him and just so happens she finds favor with the queen with the king she becomes the queen and the king responds by making governmental change just because of her presence that's really interesting he lowers taxes and he gives all these different people gifts but please understand and notice she is placed in a power of authority way before there's any trouble brewing whatsoever so let me read now in verses 15 to 18 Esther chapter 2, verses 15 to 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as, as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegel, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning the favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, this would be sort of our December, January time frame, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So a lot of time has now passed. The king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So the king is so taken with her that he actually begins to set a precedent for enacting governmental change simply because of her presence. This is some wonderful, beautiful foreshadowing. But I want to remind you, Mordecai and Esther are not heroes. I know we like to cast them in such light because we love hero stories in the West. But this book is written to a bunch of people who were in covenant disobedience and disfaithfulness, which again reminds us, here's the gospel. God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. And this is very good news. You are never disqualified from God getting done what God wants to get done in your life. And yet, there is still a part for us to play. I only have for this morning a single point of application, and it goes like this. 
Be faithful because God is faithful. Not God is faithful, so you have to try your best to be faithful. Please don't misunderstand. That would be law. I'm not placing that chain on anybody. Be faithful because God is faithful. Since he is such a great, faithful God, that's his character. That's what he's like. We want to experience fellowship and proximity with him. It is the best thing for us. Despite all the circumstances looking like, if we don't do what God wants us to do, we might have prosperity and bounty and blessing. Be faithful because this God that we love, he is faithful. It's an interesting contrast when Daniel is told he cannot pray, he says, I'll die first. When Hananiah, uh, Azael, and Mishael, Azariah and Mishael, the three friends of Daniel, when they are told that they have to bow down and worship, they will not do it. Apparently, Esther and Mordecai have long since been compromising. This is no problem for them. When she is told, you will be prepared for this pagan love feast, it's no problem for her or even for Mordecai. We're told in verse 10 of chapter 2 that he tells her, do not let anyone know that you are Jewish. Whereas Daniel and his three friends openly say, we are from Israel. So I want to be very careful that when we say be faithful because God is faithful, it's that we increasingly think on the character and the quality of our God, and that births within us a desire to do same. So that what we should do is really more about what we want to do. And ever increasingly, it becomes congruent with God's will, which is always best for us. God's faithfulness, praise God, does not depend on ours. 